0: Dimitar Sassilov has studied astronomy at Harvard University since 1998, where he is the Phillips Professor of Astronomy. His research explores modes of interaction between light and matter and its uses in remote sensing. He and his team have discovered planets orbiting other stars with novel techniques Dimitar hopes to use to find other planets similar to the Earth. Sassilov watches for them by looking for transits. He has numerous awards and has lectured at DLD, Ted, and Davos. Sasolov's book, The Life of Super-Earths, Basic Books 2012, describes the renewed search for life beyond the solar system. Sasolov is the founding director of the Harvard Origins of Life Initiative, a cross-disciplinary institute that joins biologists, chemists, and astronomers in searching for the starting points of life on Earth and possibly anywhere and everywhere else. Frank Laukeen is an inventor in mass spectrometry NMR, and superconducting magnet technology. He received a PhD in chemical physics in 1988 from Harvard. Today, he is the CEO of Bruker Corporation, a leading scientific instruments company. Frank previously served on the Dean's Advisory Committee of the School of Science of MIT, and on the board of Analytical Life Science and Diagnostic Association, or the ALDA, including one year as chairman. In 2017, He has been elected a Senator of Architect, the German Natural Science and Engineering Academy. Most recently, he has written a book with the title Natural Evolution 4.0 on feedback-driven and actively accelerated biological evolution. I'm Stefan Laukine, your discussion moderator, one of the founders of Mudhouse Media, and I'll be presenting an abstract on vertebrate co-opting of viral calciomics at the Society for Molecular Biology and Evolution Conference in June. This is Origins and Evolution. Welcome today and thank you for joining us. We're going to start off with the first inaugural question for Dimitar. Dimitar, what is the Harvard Origin of Life Initiative and why are you passionate about the subject?
1: The Harvard Origins of Life Initiative is a team of scientists, graduate students, postdoctoral fellows at Harvard, which is trying to answer one of the big ancient questions of humanity. What is the origin of life? What is life? And where are we all coming from? We do research which involves both chemistry and some biology, a lot of planetary science, a lot of astronomy. It is a truly multidisciplinary team because the question of the origins of life requires it. We like to call it origins of life because we allow for multiple pathways on different planets to bring about what we call life. Not necessarily the single question of life on Earth. How did that happen? We want to understand it in general. And that is where the question brings the astronomers to ask, are we alone? in the galaxy or in the universe. And so you ask me, why am I passionate or what am I passionate? Well, how can you not be passionate about the biggest question there is? That answer is not there yet, you know, science hasn't answered that question. So everybody on our team is really pumped up and very motivated to make a difference.
2: And Dimitar, it's occurred to me uh, and to you, of course, as well, we had that discussion that perhaps even on Earth alone, there might have been multiple origins, plural, origins of life. And some people have argued that life might almost be inevitable under the right circumstances. What are your views on that? To me, the origins of life is really a deterministic question, meaning
1: if we know Uh, what the conditions are, the atmosphere, the lake, the sea, the continents, then you get the chemistry to always produce something which we eventually call life. Is there a single pathway? Probably not. Is it universal? We don't know. Is it like Newton's law of gravitation, universal gravitation? That is what we are trying to answer. And if we can find evidence here on Earth that it started with multiple tries, the more the merriers. That's why we call it origins.
2: I would concur with that. Of course, time will tell. What do you think are some of the toughest problems that you might be able to solve, you and your team and the initiative, in the next, let's say, five years?
1: Well, the first uh, very important problem is to complete the pathway in a lab we want to be able to have the results being reproduced in a lab. So you start with the gases, the water, and the salts that are in the original lake, and you do this in the in your lab, just like you would do a chemical experiment, and you follow the steps all the way to the moment when the chemical system starts behaving like life. We call it protocells. They actually probably will look like little cells, because they will be surrounded by membranes. This is number one. Number two, a big challenge, is to link this to the planetary context. The Earth, Mars, and of course the exoplanets. We want to do this, and our work in the lab is kind of our homework to get this done.
2: Since I've become affiliated with the Harvard Origins of Life Initiative about a year ago, I have found it so fascinating to learn from you and other researchers here at Harvard or Harvard Medical School how Earth has been changed so dramatically by life. However it started, it has changed Earth dramatically. For instance, you have taught me that before life came along, there essentially was no oxygen or or no oxygen here on, on Earth. And with life, we have created the present 21% oxygen level that we all need so badly. Why is it so difficult to study the origins of life on modern Earth?
1: Modern Earth is a very alive and dynamic planet. It changes all the time. It is true that it doesn't change fast enough to us humans that live very short lives to notice it. But on the timescales that geologists study of millions of years... The earth is constantly boiling and changing. We call this plate tectonics. The continents are moving with respect to each other. New volcanoes and new islands appear and disappear. And in all of that recycling of old continents, we have lost the uh, history of the early earth. All those rocks which would have kept an archive, a record for us, are gone. So we have a whole 500 million years of Earth history, which is lost from the geological record.
2: At a recent dinner, you told me we might have to fly to the moon to find rocks as they existed on early Earth. Can you explain that? Surprising suggestion? Absolutely. In fact, uh, let's make it our next
1: project. We'll go on a field trip to the moon to look for old rocks. I'm in. (laughs) It's a great um, idea that people have been kicking around for maybe 30, 40 years now. We know that when asteroids hit the Earth or the other planets, occasionally the impact is so great that pieces of rock literally hurled into space. And then we find them, eventually they come down to the Earth back as meteorites. So we, for example, have a very large collection of Martian meteorites, rocks from Mars, which have fallen on the Earth. It goes the other way as well. There should be rocks from the Earth, from impacts early on in its history, which have landed on the Moon. Unlike the Earth, the Moon is a dead piece of rock. Beautiful, but dead. It hasn't changed. Nothing has happened there. And those old rocks that landed there 4 billion years ago are still there. We are sure of that. But there are not that many of them, and it's a big challenge to find them. It requires more than a robot, so that's why I suggested we go and pick them up ourselves.
2: That'll be a fun field trip for this podcast. Are you coming along to record? (laughs) Of course. (laughs) Dimitar, in in astrobiology, which is always uh, close to your heart as an astronomer and, of course, relates to the Origins of Life initiative, what do you think we need to do to look for putative life in our solar system, and when might we have further insights into these important questions?
1: Well, the first thing is to look on Mars. Mars is a planet which is closest to what the Earth looked like in the early times of the solar system. We know it had liquid water on the surface, it had rivers, lakes, even seas. That is our number one spot. It's nearby, and we know how to explore it, and NASA is actually following up with a long-term program to do exactly that. Then there are the moons of the giant planets in the solar system. I'm particularly fond of the Saturn moons. There are two of them that are very interesting. One of them is Titan, which is the only other body in the solar system that has a thick atmosphere just like the Earth. But it's very, very cold. So instead of having rocks made of rock, you have the rocks being frozen water. It's so cold that the strength of the ice, water ice, is comparable to that of granite. But what is flowing on the surface of Titan is liquid gas, natural gas, methane, ethane. And we know from the pictures from Orbit that some of these lakes are very beautiful with bays and uh, fjords, and, but they are not water lakes. So who knows what may have developed there, chemically speaking. It will be fascinating to have a look.
2: I guess our field trip to Titan will take a little longer, but will there be unmanned missions that are already in the planning stages? Yes, to yes. These big moons that I understand can be as big as Earth.
1: Yes, NASA has missions in the pipeline, uh, approved in terms of Titan, We have to wait. It takes a long time to get to Saturn, almost eight, nine years. But once we get the mission there, the pictures will be fantastic, I can promise you that.
2: Well, we won't get to any other stars and other solar systems or exoplanets anytime soon. But with some of the technologies you've developed and other astronomers have developed, we uh, can detect a lot of exoplanets. In fact, there was a Nobel Prize for that recently Very exciting. And now there are thousands of exoplanets that have been cataloged, and undoubtedly tens or hundreds of thousands more of exoplanets will be discovered in the next few years with new NASA missions and European Space Agency missions. How will we look for life or biosignatures of life in this other branch of astrobiology?
1: Ironically, that's the easy part. We know how to do this. We call it remote sensing. We have uh, spent Good 50 years, humanity has spent good 50 years developing the engineering behind remote sensing, mostly to look from orbit down towards the surface of the Earth. But now if you take that same concept, turn the telescope towards the star, you know or have detected a planet orbiting that star, you can use the same approach to study or explore what is in its atmosphere, in some cases on its surface. For example, we recently had a measurement of the surface properties of a rocky planet around a nearby star. And from the colors of the light that is reflected, you could tell what kind of rock it was. It was basalt as opposed to granite, for example. So we can do that. That's the easy part, remote sensing. The difficult part, Frank, is what are we actually looking for? We know what happened on early Earth. There were bacteria, there were cyanobacteria, then eventually plants and animals came onto the scene. We don't have a good idea what an alien living planet will look like. And that's why our Origins of Life initiative team is putting a lot of effort in working in the lab to glean a little bit of what are the options, what are the options that could give us those biomarkers that are more general as opposed to what we only know from our own history, which probably is limited.
2: Coming back to Earth for a moment in the Harvard Origins of Life initiative, are there researchers that are also studying the origins of photosynthesis and the origins of uh, metabolism, which are important ingredients for life?
1: Yes, in fact, um, it's a probably good way to describe the research and also how we see those different steps in the origin of life as phase one and phase two. Phase one will be the initial build-up of the molecules which we call bio-building blocks, biomolecules that are building blocks. So they are the amino acids the units that make up your DNA and RNA and so on. This is, we believe, a deterministic process because it's almost entirely just chemistry. But the moment you have those biomolecules, we know that they very actively assemble into complex structures and not in a completely random way. In fact, in a very orderly way. And so that is the beginning of what you could call phase two. And there is no big transition from phase one phase two. It's just, it's constantly producing those molecules, let's say in a lake on the early earth. And then you're starting to build up the complexity, which we call life today, the protocells. And what is going to happen then next is anybody's guess. That's why we want to build it in the lab because you want, that protocell to multiply to change to develop into different forms and we want to watch it
2: do you Kit? well the Harvard Origins of Life initiative is certainly uh, absolutely fascinating and uh, brings together some of the brightest minds here in in the area but also in, uh, in uh, globally as, as guest speakers and we'll have uh, other episodes of this uh, podcast series of Origins and Evolution where we can dig much deeper and then I'll have more discerning questions for you, and uh, it's just absolutely fantastic that you're leading this and have created this initiative because it answers some of the most important problems for mankind, or it will at least endeavor to do so.
0: Dimitar, can you introduce and discuss some of the other key players and departments involved with your initiative?
1: Our initiative uh, involves several departments in several schools. I am in the astronomy department, which also involves a lot of my colleagues who study exoplanets and how planets form. For example, Professor Karen Oberg or David Charbonneau, or David Latham of the current NASA TESS mission to discover new exoplanets. Then we have a part of the team in the Earth and Planetary Science Department. That makes sense. We are looking for... Earth becoming a living planet, uh, emergence of life on Earth, and uh, that involves studying the old record, the old rocks, but also understanding uh, those conditions which can bring the chemistry together. And of course, then, speaking of chemistry, we have colleagues in the chemistry department, like George Whitesides, who are, in fact, building those systems that resemble living systems. George Whitesides and Juan Perez Mercader are the people who develop living-like artificial systems so that we can understand how they function. And then we have the Department of Genetics in the medical school at Harvard, where a lot of the chemistry and the next phase, which is the genetic code, is being developed for that um, team effort. There we have uh, Professor Jack Shostak, who, by the way, got the Nobel Prize in 2009 for the endings of DNA at telomeres, and uh, has put all his energy into Origins of Life in the past few years. And of course, we have George Church, who is a brilliant genetics pioneer, who is helping us understand mirror life. And this is a way to describe to you our team, how... Multi dimensional and multidisciplinary, it is. These people, as Frank already mentioned, uh, one of the best in the world, and working together as a team, you can't stop a team like that. It's uh, tremendous, it's exciting.
0: So, Frank, what in your research made you so passionate and led you to Dimitar in the Origins of Life Initiative? Well, actually, I met Dimitar
2: coincidentally about a year ago when he was a TEDx speaker. A local TED event here at the organized in Natick, where he gave a brilliant and inspiring talk. And I met him in the coffee break, and we both noticed that we have interests in common. I'm certainly very interested in the origins of life. But when you study evolution, one of the things you also always have to think about how did evolution start? What is the origin of evolution? Or to use a more technical term, what was the beginning of evolvability? Technically, that means that you have to store some biological information in some information storage polymer that could be a a piece of DNA or perhaps a piece of early RNA or some primordial predecessor of these information storage molecules of life. And then coincidentally, some of the people that Dimitar has just mentioned, George Whitesides, did not only teach chemistry to Dimitar, apparently one summer, but to me at my first semester at MIT, where I was studying physics, but it turned out that George Whitesides' chemistry course was, was probably my most inspiring course in my freshman first semester freshman year. And then since it's a small world here in Cambridge and Boston, Massachusetts, Decades later, I met George Church when we had a joint project that was financed by the U.S. National Institute of Science and Technology, and we were going to use a mass spectrometry technology, that's my field of technology, to make an ultra-high-throughput sequencer. And as you know, George Church is one of the most prolific inventors in genomics and has probably come up with two dozen different ways of, of sequencing the genome. It turns out our project kind of didn't work, at least not for the intended purpose, but it was the basis for what we then later on did in proteomics. And it is, in fact, the basis for what we use for ultra-high throughput proteomics and metabolomics, which are highly complementary to genomics. So that's just an aside between the origins of life and my focus on natural evolution There are many, many things that have connected us here locally. It's uh, fascinating because
1: the point at which our Origins project here ends, meaning creating that protocell, is the point at which your work and interest begins, which is the origin of development, natural evolution, what happens next. And uh, it's a perfect follow-up. On, uh, and connection in that way.
0: Frank, can you please introduce us to your book, Natural Evolution 4.0, and why you're passionate about it? We probably won't have a ton of time today to hit on it, but we'll definitely get there down the road.
2: Yes, gladly. The Natural Evolution 4.0 is a is a novel framework for biological evolution. It is primarily focused on creating a broader framework of how organismal evolution really works, and it also takes a look at how cancer evolution or cancer quasi-evolution works actually in patients or in cancer. A number of interesting topics, and it just turns out that the way our textbooks and most scientists today understand natural evolution or biological evolution isn't quite correct. The perception is still there under the modern synthesis concept of evolution that there are only infinitesimal random changes in DNA, which then gets selected for by natural selection, Darwin's natural natural selection And my concept and framework of natural evolution 4.0 is Darwinian in nature. I still believe, and there's plenty of evidence, that natural selection for differential fitness is still the big driving force of evolution. But how do changes get generated? And the fascinating insight turns out to be that the mechanisms of evolution themselves have evolved. When we started out, Three and a half to four billion years ago, when life on Earth at least had its origin or origins, random mutations were probably the only thing we had. That was the only process, however inefficient it was, to generate novelty that could then be selected to select the fittest. But in the meantime, life has evolved. And not only have new traits and new species evolved, but the evolutionary mechanisms or processes themselves have evolved to where today, in disease cases, they can still disease or driver mutations to trigger oncogenes in cancer. Random mutations still do play a role, but not really an adaptive or beneficial role. Today, we have feedback-driven, active cell biology processes that greatly accelerate evolutionary processes And they have evolved over a couple of billion years. Evolution was very slow in the first two billion years of life on Earth, as far as we can tell from the fossil evidence and from the DNA record that we now have are accumulating. And then things accelerated with better evolutionary processes, namely active cell biology processes that actively and based on external feedback, on environmental feedback, could modify rearrange and even rewrite our dna and only that in my opinion and the opinions of a number of researchers that are working in this field has really made the difference in not only developing complex life multicellular life that has only existed for about 5 to 600 million years but also the complex organs the complex traits look at the human hand look at the eye look at the brain These things are very difficult and, in my opinion, actually quite impossible to explain with random infinitesimal mutations only. So a corrected understanding of how modern biological and organismal evolution works is really very fundamental to our worldview, to our understanding of fundamental cell biology, and it probably will make a big difference in many disease areas where we have not had sufficient progress in recent years. And where new insights into how evolution really works, modern evolution, evolved evolution really works, is likely to be quite beneficial, at least for a fundamental understanding of how cancer works, and hopefully also to get new diagnostic markers and new therapy targets for better treatments in the future. At least that's the hope.
1: Frank, in your book, you talk about viruses, and I think the topic of the day is... uh, Is there something you could connect to what is happening right now and our future ways and ability to deal with pandemics?
2: Yes, Dimitar, we um, obviously are dealing with a major evolutionary event, unfortunately, in this case of the coronavirus, where some major evolutionary major step occurred somewhere in China. People are still trying to track that down and we have a new coronavirus, a SARS coronavirus that's causing the present outbreak. We're not dealing with one coronavirus anymore, but different strains and different mutations. So micro mutations of the coronavirus are going on as we speak, and they're being used by scientists to trace outbreaks did the Brazilian outbreak come from China, or did it come via Italy, where the the Seattle outbreak that we have in this country can be traced that way? So there's microevolution with random mutations in the coronavirus, but there also somewhere in the last year or so, probably was a major mutational step. Scientists call that sometimes a saltatory evolutionary step, or in plain English, it's a big jump one that's not readily explained by traditional modern synthesis type of evolution. So it may be a good example. It's still early days. It may be a good example of this active, accelerated, and feedback-driven evolution. It's certainly on everybody's mind. Viruses other than the coronaviruses can be very beneficial. Many of them have had a huge impact on evolution of animals and plants, and they've via horizontal gene transfer, i.e. not from parent to progeny, basically moving laterally, if you like. It's called horizontal gene transfer, and some of that occurs via perhaps bacteria. It's very well known in bacteria. That's how they spread antibiotic resistance. But viruses are also believed to be a huge part of the horizontal gene transfer that has accelerated and continues to influence modern evolution. Or as Jim Shapiro a professor of microbiology at the university of chicago and one of the visionaries in this field has said so succinctly no genome is an island
0: this has been origins and evolution hosted by dimitar sesilov and frank laukin I've been your host, Stefan Laukin, and this podcast has been powered by Mudhouse Media, a diversified podcast network. This has been a fun introduction and overview of the podcast series. Please join us next time as we discuss the Fermi Paradox and the search for extraterrestrial life and extraterrestrial intelligence. Thank you so much for listening.